You're listening to Beyond the Plate with Andrew Kaplan. This sounds so weird. You're listening to Beyond the Plate with Cappy. All right, where are we? Set the tone. Tell us where we are. We are sitting in my dining room in New York City, um, overlooking probably the smallest kitchen of anyone that I know. And I'm sitting in my chair where I write and type everything if I'm working out in New York. Even though I built a really nice desk in my living room, I don't think I've ever sat at it, not once in 11 years. Hey everyone, this is Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate, a podcast where I sit down in person with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the industry and the social impact they have made in their community. Every episode, we'll share inspiring stories of what it means to be in today's bustling hospitality industry. You can find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Cappy's Plate. That's O-N-K-A-P-P-Y-S-P-L-A-T-E. Or go to www.beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on your preferred listening site of choice. For this episode, I sat down with author, daytime host, and philanthropist Rachel Ray. Ray's the host of syndicated daytime television show, Rachel Ray, has had multiple shows on the Food Network, authored 22 cookbooks, is the founder and editorial director of her own magazine, Rachel Ray Every Day, and the creator of her own line of cookware, cutlery, kitchen tools, signature food ingredients, and more. In 2008, she created a line of pet food called Nutrish, from which she has donated $16 million to help support animals in need. In 2007, she launched Yummo, a cooking and kids nonprofit organization that empowers kids and their families to develop healthier relationships with food and cooking. She most recently partnered with a legacy classic and craft master furniture to channel her passion and aesthetic vision for design and interiors into the home furnishings category with the introduction of the Rachel Ray Home Collection. Full disclosure, if you have not listened to episode zero, I currently serve as the director of special projects for the Rachel Ray brand and am the co-founder and director of her cooking and kids charity called Yummo. In this episode, Rachel shares stories about people like Kathy Griffin, Tom Jones, Oprah Winfrey, Howard Stern, Craig Ferguson, Michelle Obama, and more. She talks about industry pros like Danny Meyer, Chef Scott Conan, Chef Daniel Rose of Le Cuckoo and my mother. About Rachel Ray's philanthropy, I will say this. She is one of the most generous and giving people in the business. To quote her, I feel uncomfortable having too much when there are so many that don't have enough. Last item of business, please join us next week when Beyond the Plate presents Just the Plate. This is a short segment where chefs describe a recipe sharing insider tips on what makes this specific dish meaningful to them. Rachel will discuss her carbonara pasta, and her husband, John Cusimano, joins her to share how to make a classic cocktail, the Negroni. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation and episode one with Rachel Dominica Scuderi Ray. So I woke up to a text this morning. Well, I didn't wake up to it. What time did you text me? But you said there's an Asian market booth near the back of the green market, close to 17th, that should have shiso. You can go there and grab some shishitos and shiso <laughs> and some mint. Everyone has mint. You're awesome. Thank you. I'll buy you drinks and dinner. I made a some onion dip with veggies and chips for 5 p.m. pot snack. Mm. Caramelized onion, Vidalia, garlic, white and black pepper, ground thyme, salt and yogurt with chai and chai flowers from my garden. 
If only every podcast started out like this. <laughs> so I brought you sesame leaves, which are technically Korean, not Japanese. Yeah, you blew off the, the shishito. Yeah, I fucked up. Sorry. That's okay. Um, what are you making with the shisos again? I'm making uh, ribeye steaks on the grill tomorrow, and we're going to put Japanese seven spice and smoked sea salt and lime juice, grilled lime juice on them, and I'm making a, a kind of a Japanese uh, salsa verde to go with it. So shiso, or in this case, sesame leaf, mint, anchovy, caper, garlic, ginger, splash of mirin and rice wine vinegar. I haven't decided on the oil yet. Probably just olive oil. So making sort of a Japanese uh, salsa verde thing and uh, corn with chives and a green tomato, cucumber, mint salad. And uh, yeah. Sounds delicious. And sake if John remembered to order it. John, your husband. And just a heads up to people listening. There are probably going to be many times that Rachel cuts me off and many times that I try to cut her off. (laughs) Some of these answers could be three seconds and some could be 30 minutes. I could probably ask her one question. And I could talk for the next hour. Yesterday I called you about one thing and we were literally on the phone an hour later. Yeah, Yeah. try an hour and 40 minutes. (laughs) I believe that. And you will probably hear me laughing a bunch in the background. I've worked with you for 11 years and we met when I worked for the South Beach Wine and Food Festival. There's a real time we met and then there's like a second time we met. So the first time we met is the first time you did a demo at Sobe. And you walked in and I said, hey, can I take you to the green room? And you're like, yeah, sure. Let's go get green in the green room. (laughs) (laughs) And then the next time was when I was wearing the T-shirt. Do you remember the story? I remember that you wear T-shirts that have food on them. And I thought that was brilliant. Okay. So last night we were talking and I cut you off a bunch because there was many things I wanted to talk about here. But the T-shirt I was wearing said polenta. And it was gold colored with brown letters or brown with gold letters. But all of the t-shirts were like salt and pepper was like black and white. Very clever. Okay. So that polenta shirt I was wearing because of Scott Conant. Mm. I would travel to different events when I worked Mm. for South Beach and he would always make the same polenta dish with mushrooms that's on his menus (laughs) now. So I made a dish to kind of F with them a little bit. And that's the shirt you saw me wearing. You're like, Polenta, cool shirt. Where'd you get that? And I was like, oh, I made it. You're like, what do you mean? (laughs) We used to make t-shirts in the mall when I was a kid. I was a big um, disco roller skater. And like the hottest place to go in the mall was to go to the t-shirt factory. Really? And see what the new like fuzzy letters and rainbows and, you know, all the new press-on decals were to have the coolest t-shirt at the disco rink for that weekend. When was the last time you were on roller skates? Uh, A few years ago, we did like a company party. We went, we all went to Staten Island and and roller skated. I I have not kept my stuff. (laughs) When I was a kid, I was crazy. I could do cartwheels on my stoppers and the duck walk and the hamel camel. No one today that works with me, maybe four people that that work at our show, even know who Dorothy Hamill is. But I used to be able to do all kinds of tricks, and I wore velvet jeans, and I had Bay City Roller blue wheels and pom-poms on my skates, (laughs) and a badass blue satin jacket, and it was was cool, man. I lived at Skateland. In 15 seconds, I'm setting my timer, what words would you use to describe yourself? I'm just curious to hear what you would say. Hardworking, loyal. Um, night owl doesn't take yourself too seriously tough I don't know you'd have to ask other people I don't think you could properly describe yourself fine 
Done. 15 seconds. <laughs> I don't think anybody has a realistic view of themselves as, as other people see them. You know, that's just being honest. I'd like to think I'm, I'm a loyal person and that I'm a good daughter, wife, doggy mama, um, fairly decent human, try and be a better one every day. I mean, I, I don't think about my life that way. I don't get up and say, okay, let's be a better person today. I just get up and do what, what feels like a, a good long day. I'm very bad at doing nothing and I'm very bad at reflection. Very bad at doing nothing, very bad at reflection. Yeah. Got it. Wait, you said you're tough and I think people would say you're tough. A tough woman, why do you think they say that? Because I work longer and harder than the next person and I don't complain about it. I find beauty in it. I like that feeling at the end of the day. Whether you're a man or a woman, I think it I, I think it really feels good to get to the end of your day and feel like, wow, that was a tough day, but it was so worth it. Like, now I can play hard because I worked hard and that was super fun, but I'm exhausted and now I'm going to have a little fun. And, and you feel, I, I mean, I like the balance. That's the only balance I have in my life. I don't have balance of time or, you know, between work and, and play. But for me, balance is putting in a an out-of-balance day of work, and then I feel good about, okay, now I can chill and just do whatever comes to mind. What makes you smile? Everything. I mean, food makes me smile, great music makes me smile, a a Kleenex commercial makes me smile and cry, my dog makes me smile, my husband makes me smile, my mom makes me smile, you make me smile. I mean, I'm a smiley gal. Yeah. Growing up, how many different addresses have you had? Like, how many different places have you lived? I told you, I suck at looking back at anything. I don't know. We lived in Cape Cod when I was real little. Went to Mashpee for kindergarten. Then we're upstate New York. Then Queens, that's where I was mugged. New York City. I don't know. I am not a person that looks back. I don't even know what week it is or year it is sometimes. (laughs) You know, if I have to literally write down the date, I struggle. (laughs) I'll be at the doctor and they'll be like, what's the date today? I'm like... Seriously, because that's not how I get out of bed. I look at the day ahead the night before and 90% of it, I love what I do. So I'm a kind of a perpetual motion kind of a person. What have you learned in your, are you going on a 12 year anniversary with John? Everything is 12. Uh, The show is 12. The dog is 12. The marriage is 12. But I've been with John for, geez, 17 years, 16 years. What have you learned in your almost 12 years of marriage? Marry somebody you like. You know, John and I are very volatile people. We don't hold a lot of stuff in or keep anything back. If, If we're pissed about something, we say it straight to each other and move along. You know, we're the same in a lot of ways. It's easy to be with John. He doesn't have to eat dinner at a specific time. He doesn't, uh, you know, mind that I'm a very busy person and sometimes I'm not ready to do dinner or a party or something when he is. We work on our own schedules. He has a lot of his own interests. He's a lawyer, he works for a company, but he's a, you know, he's a musician and that's his core, his, I hate that passion thing because people overuse it, but it truly is his passion. He loves his music. He's always off doing his own thing. We both love great food. We both love dogs and animals. And um, we both love vinyl records and (laughs) old movies and really good new movies. And we have a lot of the same interests. We like each other and we laugh. Even if we scream at each other all night, we end up laughing before we go to bed. I mean, it's we make sense. You and I were in the middle of shooting a Food Network series right now, and we were chatting about like when we wake up, when we go to bed, and when we were kids. And you had mentioned when you were a kid, if you were drawing or painting or doing something. If I was cre- doing anything creative, my, I had no bedtime. My nickname when I was a kid was Little Hoot or Hoot Hoot. And my husband 
always puts his finger on the tip of my nose if he's trying to cheer me up or make me smile and he goes, hoot, hoot. I have always been a night owl. I'm not a morning person. I force myself to get up early in the morning and get to a gym and listen to very aggressive rock music just to like beat my brain and to like wake up and be positive and get your endorphins going. What aggressive rock music? Well, not aggressive, but I mean like drum driven, you know, I don't go to the gym and listen to like Skateland disco, you know, from back in the days. Although I do listen to disco if I'm running on a regular treadmill. But if I'm climbing like five miles of stairs or doing something like an elliptical at a very high resistance, I put on Foo Fighters, Led Zeppelin, Nirvana, Queens of the Stone Age. Yeah. Does anything keep you up at night? Everything keeps me up at night. I love being up at night. Everything. I keep notebooks by my bed. I stay awake and watch. I I leave movies on half the time all night long. Do you Um, dream in food ever? Like, do you wake up and turn over and write something? I dream in work. Does something get you excited to wake up? Like, I hate waking up in the morning, but if I, if I like have to travel, I'm like, all right, great. Well, I guess I'm a newsaholic when I was a little kid. I, I mean, little, little, like Nixon, little. When I was a little kid, my mom got mad at Nixon, and from across the room, she's only about four foot ten, eleven, a tough lady, ran restaurants for over fifty years. From across the room, Nixon was telling what she considered another lie, and having read and seen all the president's men many times, probably was lying. She threw her shoe at the television across the room and it hit the screen in just a way that the television literally blew up. It's like a dial television? Yeah, it was a white case Sylvania black and white TV on this like super mod like little white stand. And we were the last people in our neighborhood to not have color television. So I thought that was so cool. Um, And I was a small child. So all of a sudden Nixon was kind of my favorite president because we finally got a color television. And I started watching the news. And then I fell in love with, like, not in love like a handsome person, but, like, I just really found it comforting to watch Walter Cronkite and Harry Reasoner in 60 Minutes, and I became this, like, news junkie at a very little age. I became obsessed with the news. What's the first smell in the kitchen that you remember as a child? I don't know if I remember the smell, but my first memory is grilling my thumb. How old were you? Oh, three or four. My mom, as I said, has, has worked as in restaurants for uh, ever, decades, 50 plus years. And when I was little, literally the first memory I have, my mom used to make tomato soup and she'd make a Swiss cheese mustache, she'd call it. It was basically a frico. She'd put a slab of Swiss cheese or something of similar moisture value on a hot, on the hot flat top on the griddle and she'd use the big spatula to kind of squish it up when it got all bubbly and melty and she'd pinch it in the middle and pull it off and let it cool and it looked like a little brown bow tie like a man's a gentleman's bow tie but it was a freak up sounds delicious and i would have a little cup of her tomato soup every day she made lovely tomato basil soup I'd have a little cup of tomato basil soup and i dip the grilled cheese bow tie in it I mean, the uh, cheesy bow tie in it. So my mom was screaming at a purveyor and calling in the orders, and I was on her hip. And we had a wall phone in the kitchen, and she had tangled herself up because she's very, uh, just like I'm using my hands to talk right now. She's a very... Expressive? uh, Yes, she's a... expressive when she's angry. So she was spinning and spinning and we were all tangled up in the cord of the phone. Phones used to have cords. I'm not that young. (laughs) Between the thing you talk it to and the actual thing you dialed on. She had to untwirl us and then she put me down so she could hang up the, the telephone 
and I saw the spatula on the edge above my head. You know, there's like the the chopping block in front of the flat top. And I saw the spatula sitting there and she had just turned the the flat top on. She just turned the grill on, uh, you know, maybe half an hour before when we got to the restaurant. So she's hanging up the phone and finishing her fight with this guy. And I reach up and I'm playing with the spatula and I push it forward and my thumb grills to the griddles, this thumb right here. So my mom jokes that I went into food because I'm Harry Potter, that I marked myself <laughs> at a very early age. <laughs> That's incredible. What's the first cookbook you ever owned? We, uh, my mom loves cookbooks. Our favorites, um, my mom and I were always together in the kitchen, as was my grandpa when he was still here. And my, my mom was the first of 10 children. She was always in the kitchen too. We, our cookbooks, our, our go-tos and are still my favorite cookbooks are Julia Child, Marcella Hazan, of course, and Jacques Pepin. And the uh, Galloping Gourmet, Graham Kerr. What's the last cookbook that you read or flipped through that you loved? Not your own. Oh, no, I buy tons of them. I don't even know what the answer to that is. I love the Zahav book. I, I, um, I, I don't know if I bought that or he, I think Michael just gave it to me. I think I bought it and then he gave me a copy as well. But I buy um, food magazines and cookbooks from all over the world and in languages I don't speak. In fact, I kind of prefer them in languages I don't speak because I have to figure it out by looking at it and trying to see if there's a word I can pick up. Yeah, I mean, I studied French for several years, but I'm not fluent. I studied Italian for several years. I'm not fluent. I'm terrible at Spanish, although it's all related, so I don't know why. (laughs) But I can get clues and I kind of like buying things things in languages I don't know so that I can piece it together and play around with it. It's fun. Can you give me a snapshot of your career, like quick snapshot until you, like up until Food Network time? I mean, not really. I grew up working in restaurants, then I worked in gourmet markets, then I got mugged, then I had to leave New York and I moved back to the country. And I started all over. And when I could do the job that I left in New York, um, I started working at a little market and I started teaching 30-minute meals because my boss had confidence in me and my food. Upstate. Yep, even though I wasn't a proper chef. And that got me on the news, and the local news made a 30-minute meal segment. And then I guess the, the craziest part, other than if I hadn't moved back to the country, I was doing really well in New York. I worked for uh, Macy's Marketplace back in its heyday, and, of course, Agatha and Valentina, my sweet friends Joe and Agatella. I loved my life. I was making what I thought was a fortune. And What was that? Joe was very generous and he gave me bonuses and stuff. So probably over a hundred thousand. I don't know. I don't care about money any more than I care about dates, but it was a lot of money to me. And it was a long time ago. Um, but you know, I went to work, you know, before dawn and I go home when they went home at like 11, 12 at night. In fact, the night I got mugged, they had driven me home. Really? Mm-hmm. So they drove you home, dropped you off, drove away. And-, and they saw me go inside the front door and the kids were waiting. And one kid stayed outside once I went in the first door and the second kid came in behind me, stuck a gun in my back. Jesus. And I sprayed him with mace really? or whatever it was, pepper spray, whatever the thing is that all women kept on their subway token thing yeah. that looked like the Pentagon. We had like a 10 token subway holder, like every person had it. And every woman had this like pepper spray thing, right? At least every girl I knew. I don't know this part of the story. So I sprayed the kid and he came back a week later and beat me up. Yeah, that's when I quit. And I'm like, I got to go back to the country. <laughs> I, I, I'm not good here. This is like, okay, two strikes, three, I'm going to be dead, not out. But because I went back to the country, I eventually got the job at Cowan Bell and eventually did 30 Minute Meals. And then a friend of mine called from the local NPR, you know, the public radio station. He said he had a show called Vox Pop, Joe. And he said, Rach, uh, I got a problem. 
my guest canceled and his show is going to start in like 45 minutes. He's like, can you come over and cook on the radio? Because I was teaching 30 minute meals in our, in our market to sell more groceries because nobody was buying groceries. So I decided to do a poll and I asked my customers why they were not buying our groceries. And they said, because I don't know how to cook. Ah. So I, I started teaching uh, 30 minute meals. This was in the 90s? Yeah, early 90s. And so Joe says, well, come on over and cook one of your 30-minute meals in our studio. I said, dude, I hate to break it to you, but you're on the radio, man. Nobody can see food on the radio. He's like, who cares? Come on over. I said, do you also know about, like, fire codes and, you know, laws attached to them and stuff? You're not allowed to cook in a radio sound booth? I'm pretty sure. He's like, please, I'm desperate. So I literally brought a hot plate and a pan and pulled the groceries from the store and wrote them down and cashed them out to publicity. <laughs> Drove over to the radio station in my pickup truck and made 30-minute jambalaya. I called it similar to jambalaya, but you have to go to 30 minutes, so it's not going to be like, an, you know. <laughs> I have a father-in-law who lives in Tulsa and has a pickup truck. What kind of pickup truck did you drive? <laughs> I had a Ford cheapest on the lot that had decent sound system. <laughs> <laughs> of course. A Ford pickup truck. I still love Ford. Ford's a great company. Ford is the only American car company that I was so proud of during that whole, you know, economic cave-in. They didn't ask for a government bailout. And the great-great-grandson or great-grandson of uh, Henry Ford himself took a dollar salary and kept that company going. Retooled their cars to be energy efficient and green and run on partial, you know, electric and all that. I love that all of my life until fairly recently, I drove and chose Ford. Do you ever have a craving to have a pickup truck for fun anymore? No, because now we have a Tesla and it's pretty freaking cool. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we got the Tesla not only to be green, of course, and be off the grid, but because they finally do about 200 miles, which is the distance between where we live in the Adirondacks in New York. And because my dog is 12 and my mom is uh, 82 now, I think, and she's a very tiny lady, I wanted my dog, who has a little arthritis, she's getting older, and my mom to be able to get in and out of our car a little easier. We have the the kind of SUV, you know, four-wheel thing um, that Tesla makes. I mean, it's great to be off the grid, but I truly do live. I'm one of the few people, maybe, you know, we get picked on a lot in in movies and television, people that drive SUVs. We're not city dwellers. I grew up in the Adirondack Mountains, and we really live on a very tiny side of a mountain, and we, we truly need to be able to get in and out in a snowstorm. When our power goes out, it's out for four days. It's not out for four minutes or four hours. Wait, what do you have, like... A backup generator or something? That Absolutely. Kicks in. Everybody in the country, whether you live in a trailer or a small house you have to have that. or a cabin or a big house, you have some sort of generator. Some people have small ones, some people have big ones, but we all, but most generators just, you know, they'll get the stove going or a uh, light going so your child it's can. It's like minimal power. It's very, yeah, it's not the same as being on the grid, of course, but. Well, fair to say that obviously two shows that put you on the map 30 minute meals and $40 a day. Mm-hmm. Here's my question to you. Do you remember your 30-minute meals intro? Oh, my gosh. Hi, I'm Rachel Rain. I make 30-minute meals. In the next 30 minutes, I don't know. I'm not good at scripted anything. My friend Mark Disson wrote that, or Steve Kniff, or the combination of the two, two guys I love. But no, I do remember that it was very hard for them. 
I don't do camera one, camera two. They had to say, look at Jay, look at Dante. You know, like they had to use people's names. I think I remember that when I went in there and once. And then I couldn't do feeding you information, all that. I always had to be a just let her go kind of a gal. The only line I had to do was that line, which is, I have a funny um, mental glitch thing. If I meet someone and they're not very nice to me or I don't think they're very nice, or if I am watching a film or something and I don't, I'm like, oh, I, I don't get that. Or I have something that I was forced to do that I'm not very good at, like memorizing lines or, you know, saying other people's words. It doesn't stick. I'm better at, you know, quotes from The Godfather than I am at things I had to learn to say in other people's words. I know that because when I send you, if I need you to record like a video or message. Oh, you write a script and I say none of it. I'll say ad lib this or I'll be like, do not read anything but this. I know. I'm terrible at reading. I mean, I love to read. I'm one of the few people that still, you know, subscribes to newspapers and I read real books, not digital books. And I love to read. If I'm supposed to be me, I don't like reading other people's words. Okay. I just want to rattle off some names. You and I started to talk about the past few days, but I cut you off because I wanted to save the story and I just want to hear the story or what they mean to you. First one is the Wegman family. When I was working, uh, when I went back upstate, I had to wait for a year to get the job that I wanted, which was uh, being a buyer at Calinal Bell. I had been running the fresh food side of Macy's Marketplace, which was amazing back in the day. It was like Herod's, you know, it was a big giant food hall. But as I said, after I got mugged, I moved back to the country. So I had to wait a long time because the only gourmet market upstate had a very small staff and they were very happy with their buyer. That buyer got married and moved to Canada, which opened up the job for me. So my boss and I became really good friends. We're friends to this day, Donna Carnival. We've been friends for 25 plus years. And we really had fun running this business. And we were both the kind of women that don't like to come up with the plan and we have the best plan. We're both people that just love the process of learning and investigating and going out into the world and trying to be a forerunner rather than, you know, a follower. There are no real gourmet food stores anymore here in like large giant cities. You have them. But what I'm proud of is like the things that we did in a place like Albany is we made it cool for people in the country to make the grocery stores jealous enough to start carrying mozzarella and pesto and like things that they thought were so exotic, you know, 20 years ago. That also eventually led to us going out of business, of course, because all the grocery stores started carrying all that. But the most brilliant group of people I think Donna and I ever went on when we did these little adventures, these investigations into how to be better, smarter food professionals, we went on a lot of pilgrimages. The one that probably made the biggest mark on on both of us, I think we'd agree, was Wegmans. We went to DeWitt out near Syracuse, New York, and Price Chopper at the time, uh, the company where I used to teach 30-minute meals, actually, uh, in the stores to sell more groceries for them after Cowan LaBelle closed. Uh, Well, during its time and then after it, it was gone. The Wegman family wouldn't open in our part of the state because they felt that Price Chopper was too saturated there, so they stayed out. They're in the, uh, you know, the western part of, of New York State. We drove out there to this DeWitt store, which was their, you know, kind of their crown jewel at the time. Probably still is. It was, it was just, I don't even know how to explain it. It, it was overwhelming how much we learned. This family... Did you just go to, like, investigate, or did you wind up 
talking to like people. Oh, we talk to the entire family. Not only is it family, 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 great grandfather, grandfather, father, son, you know, all of the women and men in this family vested. But more importantly to us, they treated their employees with the utmost respect and treated them like family and wanted more than anything to educate them. That was the core of their philosophy as a business, was to educate their staff first and then their their community. And that was the core of their business. And they also made fun, give people a space to enjoy everything we're doing. I don't even know where to begin about how brilliant this was. This place was packed at dinner hour. It was more popular than any restaurant around. Did they have cafes in the grocery store back then? They had beer, wine, bars. You could get food from anywhere in the store. And they had like a player piano or live music. They had cooking classes, lectures, book signings. They had whole displays where they gave you for free the recipe card and made a display of the primary ingredients. You you could pick the recipe card, buy the ingredients and leave. If you went to any specialty counter, every single person, the cheese man or woman had been on Wegman's Dime taken on the buying trip with the buyer, the manager of that station that would train all the people that would work there, went with the buyer to Spain, France, Italy, tasted cheeses. God. I'm not kidding. This is in the 90s. This is like the jewel of Chicago. This is Publix in Miami. This is Ralph's in LA. This These is, people are brilliant. This is like a I grocery store like I haven't even gotten to like the best part of it. Like, and if you worked at the seafood counter, you went to Boston and all up and down the New England seaboard. You saw where your seafood was coming from. They trained people and they spent a lot of money on them going all over the world and being the best educated people in their departments, okay? But here's the brilliant part. They put all of the storage in retail, you make dollars per square foot. So the problem we always had at Cowan Bell in Albany was almost half and a hair more of our footprint was dedicated to storage and production. Only 48% or so of our footprint we could sell and make money on. That's stupid math, right? So what was brilliant about Wegmans was they made everything a show. As much as they could put on a retail selling space, they did. And here's the super brilliant part. All of the storage for dry goods, pantry, the grocery store product, they built on top of the aisle. So here's your aisle, right? It's like 10 or 12 feet high. All of the storage of that product when it comes in goes to a loading dock that's like outdoors with like a, a hanger. Comes in on the little, whatever, the forklift yeah. uh, drivey things, right? The Lego looking yeah. stuff. And it's delivered on the, above the shelves where they put it. Huh. So you're even saving money when they're stocking it because it's stored above where you need it. It's brilliant. They even had the plumbing and the AC, like all of the, everything went up and out. Everything was built vertically and then out. It is so brilliant. And it has stayed with me. I haven't been into a DeWitt's in, I don't know, 15 years. I haven't been into a Wegmans in a very long time. When we go to QVC, we stop at Wegmans, but that particular unit. But everything I learned there was just like respect people, make them respect themselves and the job and you as much as you respect them. It's got to be a reciprocal thing. You have to choose wisely. You can't, and this, oh, my mama and Wegmans and Donna, I mean, we all agree on our management philosophy. The second a young person told me something was not their job was the second I took their job, did their job, fired them, 
did it and hired somebody else to try somebody else at it. If you don't have self-respect and you don't respect the work you're doing, I can't respect you and I can't teach you. If you come in and tell me you can't do that, you're right, you can't leave. That's why I say people think I'm tough. I don't feel that that's tough. I think that's having self-respect and demanding that of people I want to work with. Yeah, someone who says that's not my job, like, get the You're right, out. it's not. And you know, I hate to say this because it makes me a really bad person, but there must be a statute of limitations and I probably can't get sued for it now. But I actually did discriminate after a while against CIA students. Sorry, because they were always telling me if I said clean out the walk-in or rotate this or rotate that or can you help bring in the, this load from wherever, they were always telling me that that was not their job. And I found that the Johnson & Wales and SCCC, Schenectady County Community College culinary students, were more grateful and more creative, quite frankly. They thought outside the box. They didn't come in with attitude. They just came in ready to work and they were psyched that they beat out somebody from the CIA for the job. <laughs> We've talked about that. I am a CIA graduate. It. But with that said, when I went on my internship, uh, I worked at the Four Seasons in Los Angeles. After a few weeks, some of the staff were like, "Oh, where, where you know, where are you interning from?" And I said, "CIA." And I, you know, I'm kind of a quieter person, as you know. And they would say, "What? You're from CIA? Like, you don't seem like a CIA right, student." Right, because they have tood. There's plenty that are. Oh, amazing. there's plenty that are great. I mean, how much do I love Amberell? Come on, AB, top female rocker. Come on, how much do I love you? But I'm just saying because we were so close in proximity to Hyde Park, of course, it was easy for them. Like they wanted to be someplace close and they thought it was going to be this cake job because it's a gourmet market. It's not some bustling, you know, big restaurant. And I'm like, are you kidding me, man? I come to work at 4.30, 4.45 every morning. I'm lucky if I'm home by eight or nine at night. This ain't no princess walk, cupcake. Go back to your pastry class. <laughs> you told me you had a good Danny Meyer story. I love Danny Meyer so much. He is always, you know, a lot of people in restaurants are very generous to me. And then there's a few people that are very, what is she doing here? Because I went to the Culinary Institute of Work and my mom had grown up in restaurants. I did not go to the CIA. I'm not a pedigree puppy. I don't have my papers. And a lot of people just, they're polite or they'll send over a dessert or something. They're not truly kind or interested in your thoughts and actions. Danny not only has gentrified the neighborhoods that I've lived in in Manhattan for, geez, over 20 years now between when John and I were a little bit, you know, 10 blocks north of here and, and now. He's brought back the glory of my neighborhoods in New York, but he is a genuinely humble and lovely. He's so down to earth, and I just love that people that get that much success, that there's a few of them that truly deserve it and that stay that humble. My Danny Meyer story is this. A neighbor of mine is a brilliant lawyer, and she was feeling unfulfilled. And I only know her because we take Italian class together. Italian class in my dining room where it's mostly having pasta and wine. And my, my sweet friend Katerina comes and tries to teach us something. So she's feeling a little unfulfilled, although she's terrific at her job. And she's heard that Danny Meyer's company needs uh, a new general counsel. And I said, oh, you know, I love Danny. He's so great. And we, you know, we only see each other a few times, if, if we're lucky, a year. But he's always been so kind, and I have such respect for him. And she said, oh, wow, put in a good word. And I knew she didn't mean it, mean it. But I was like, well, maybe she put in a good word. So I just write him this little blurb email. And within, like, 36 hours, he writes me back this big, long letter and... How wonderful to know you're so connected to your neighbor. And there's a whole team in charge of that, but I will definitely look into it. And my neighbor did not get that job, but the fact that I could show her that and that somebody cared and that she was involved in the process and that, you know, and that it happened so quickly. When Union Square reopened, I was so excited. 
wildly. And then I went there and I just kind of got drunk on it because it was the same, but it was different. You know, it was the same, but it was great. And it was the first time I was having a fun business slash dinner with our gaggle of geese from the show. And it was the first time I'd been there like five times in a month when it reopened because I'd been in a drought for so long and missed it. And I was in the top corner because they wanted us to have a quiet place because they knew we were going to do a little bit of talking along with our food. Danny was at this little bar upstairs and he came in after I was there. I tucked in the corner. He has no reason to come over whatsoever. Made the trip down and demands we stand up and hug. Like, he's just such a warm... He's the best. He's just the most lovely human being. He really is. He's just lovely. He, uh, You never go unnoticed with Danny and he's just a decent human. I adore him. Scott Conan. Scotty Conan. First of all, he looks like uh, Chef Hugh Jackman. Handsome, great hair. Oh, no, it's hair. ridiculous. The chest is ridiculous. It looks like you pulled him out of a box. <laughs> you know, like he's like a toy you're in a hand to a small I child. I saw him. He's, he sends his best. And again, he is hilarious, down to earth. If you know him in real life, doesn't take himself too seriously and works like an SOB. This is a guy always has food on his jacket. You know, he's not like a stand and look at things or show up once a year. Whenever I go to one of his new places or a place that's, you know, not so new, you're very likely to see Scott. Scott works. By the way, the restaurant we're going to tonight is across the street from his new place. That's another one we said we're going to check out. Yes. But that's what I mean. Like, he's there. He's present. I was so delighted when he got this car company ad, and he made himself into the biggest jackass in the universe on this commercial. I called him up, and I said, and I told him in person to his face, I said, I hope you got the biggest paycheck in the universe, (laughs) because you are so not that douche. In the commercial, Scott's like... I had my first yada yada chef job when I was 21 or when I was still in the womb. And then I did this when I was like seven. And I did this when I was like 12. You know, it's the most ridiculous. He's reading copy, of course. He looks great and the car looks beautiful. I don't even know what car company it was for, but whatever. And basically the commercial is, I'm still me and I still have friends. And he's picking up food and like four or five people. And and he go back and, and... and he's breaking bread at his real kitchen. And I'm just like, dude, seriously? <laughs> it was just so not him. I had to make fun of him. I'm like, oh, thank you for still coming here, Scott. I'm so glad you still want to know me. I had to razz him because it's of so, course. he's, he he's just, it, yeah, he's he's a, awesome. he really is a very cool guy, but he would never go around and tell people, did you know when I was two? Right. I learned to chiffonade <laughs> with a plastic knife when I was three. <laughs> <laughs> What's the last dish or meal that stopped you in your tracks? Not your own, not one that you made. We have so many great nights. Where, where have we gone recently? Where, where was the last place I went? Like Cuckoo, but I feel like you've been oh, somewhere Oh, Cuckoo is the bomb, man. They just did they well They are the just James amazing. Beard. The Rabbit Three Ways. Oh, my God. So, Tom, this is totally tangential. So, look, Cuckoo blew me away. Yeah. And it's not anything I would do at home. I don't have the patience. Chef Rose is just such a cool dude. And the first night I went to Le Cuckoo, I wanted to have the rabbit three ways because I had read so much about it and it was amazing and I love rabbit. And I brought Kathy Griffin with me, who's my dear friend, and she's hilarious, but she's the world's most picky eater. And she called Chef Rose to the table and asked him if he would make her a well-done burger <laughs> and put a slab of foie gras on it. This is a chef that has an incredible restaurant in New York and that has two restaurants in Paris. But he's so cool. He, he was wearing a black T-shirt. He said, I put on my best black clean T-shirt for you. I said, uh, what's your art? And he has one tattoo and he's like, oh, I call this 
bad judgment. <laughs> he was hilarious. So I call him over and I said, yeah, man, I can't wait to try the rabbit and anything you want to send out. You know, before that, my husband really wants lamb and that's cool. Kathy is a bit of a picky eater. Kathy, you ask him because I won't. So Kathy rolls with her whole demand list. He said, I've never made a hamburger in my life, but all right. He goes in the kitchen, grinds me, makes uh, burgers, puts a slab of foie gras and a burnt to death burger, which she loves, brings it to the table, makes five pounds of duck fat fries, has his entire kitchen staff eating the fries and gives her a trough of them. It gives her everything she wants. And with the burnt burger, with the foie gras, he brings over five different sauces. He makes her five different sauces in little copper pots. He turned it into theater art for the entire restaurant. Loved it. It was amazing. Everybody in the dining room loved it. The spectacle of it. And then she wanted a double portion of chocolate mousse, she says. But I, I don't be cheap with the cream. So he puts the entire portion for the entire restaurant for the night in front of her, stands next to the table and takes a frozen giant metal bowl and whips her cream at the table. Dude, it was like going to the best Broadway show and the best French meal I have ever had in America. And, you know, honestly, every time I go there, I've been like six times now, and I've given gift certificates to every person I know to force them to go. It is so much better than the first time I went to Paris. It's, it makes me want to go to Paris again, because when I went to Paris, I ended up crying most of the time. It is the most fabulous French experience I've ever had in my life, and it's right here a few minutes from my house. And then the next day to thank him... I said, next time you have to choke down a well-done burger, this should help. It was a case of uh, PBR's Paps Blue Ribbons. Which he probably loved because he's from the he's from Chicago. I know, he's yeah. from Chicago. PBR's uh, in the can, of course, on ice and a giant man bouquet of herbs, vegetables, and white roses because his name is Rose. Anyway, I was trying to remember why I was telling you that. I was asking the last dish or meal that stopped you in your track. That's the restaurant that like yeah. kills me. I've seen you nervous twice. Really? Yeah. And once was the first time President Clinton came on the show. Oh, my God. The second time was when you had to speak at an event we were doing with Michelle Obama. And so I'm curious, like, what makes you nervous? Well, President Clinton, it was the day we were launching our charitable initiative. My mother um, did a hair flip when he came into the room. My mom has only come to the... Oh, I remember the story I was going to tell you. My mom came into the room and did a hair flip, and I've never seen my mom that impressed by any person. President Clinton is the most... He's like a tractor beam of a person. Like... He speaks to you and he looks right through you. It's crazy. And I was launching a charitable initiative that now has given away millions of dollars years later. I didn't think I'd make millions of dollars in my entire lifetime. So, I mean, that's why I was nervous. My life was changing. Who am I to launch an initiative? I, you know, I'm a waitress from upstate New York, you know. I'm a little kid from the country who grew up working in restaurants and wearing work boots, driving a pickup truck, and, you know, I own five black T-shirts and pants. I don't even own a dress. I, I hated wearing dresses as a child because I always meant a funeral or first day of school. Both of those things suck. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yep. Of course I was nervous. And Michelle, I have so much respect for, and she's one of the greatest orators of our time. Her husband's terrific too. Mario Cuomo was another person that I just thought was an amazing, amazing speaker. But Michelle, she just, everything about that woman is cool, but she is the most brilliant speaker. And speaking before or after her is just ridiculously impossible to do. Well, now, of course, I'm not nervous near her anymore. I got over that. But she is just the, the coolest of the cool. Being a part of that administration, anything we could do to help our country's kids from parents of any party... I really thought we were um, doing some, some good work there. 
Do you want to go back to the rabbit story or no? Yeah, the reason I wanted to try uh, the rabbit at Le Cucu is because my grandpa uh, had 10 children and he had to feed them all. So he was a great gardener, an amazing cook. And I think the only time my mother didn't adore her dad, my grandfather, when she was a little girl was she would name all the rabbits and was the winter where she figured out that that's how they, right, how they stayed alive. My grandfather was a wonderful cook and when we had cacciatore, it was usually rabbit. I, I love rabbit cacciatore. My first crush in life and the only thing I would put a dress on other than the first day of school and a funeral was the Tom Jones show. When the Tom Jones show was on, I put a dress on because I was convinced that Tom Jones could see me <laughs> through the television. I feel like you're cheating right now because I had a question about that. I was in love at three years old. Like Tom Jones is still my number one crush on the planet Earth. And when he did our show for the first time, I couldn't even look at him. Talk about nervous. Like the sweat was just pouring everywhere. And the first time I saw him in Las Vegas, my mom and my sister took me as my, what do they call the girls stag night? Like girls night before I got married, my sister and my mom took me to- Like bachelorette type thing? Yeah, took me to see Tom Jones. And we got backstage somehow to say hello. And there's a picture of me holding Tom, and I won't show anybody the picture because I was so covered in sweat, boob sweat, (laughs) arm sweat. Like my entire dress is just soaked with sweat. It's so disgusting. I can't believe he put his arm around me. But then years later, he was on our talk show. I still couldn't look at him. But he came to this apartment at the very table you're sitting at right now. Yep. And had, can you guess? Rabbit. You made a catch rabbit catch your tour. <laughs> My dad is actually Welsh. That's where I get the name Ray. He's he's a mutt. He's a bunch of stuff, but he's part Welsh. And my full name is Raquel Domenico Scuderi Ray. Um, but the Ray part is Welsh, and he's Welsh, and his favorite thing is rabbits. So I made him my rabbit catchatory on polenta. Boom. <laughs> hey, but when it comes to entertainment, there's the political world, and it comes to entertainment. I feel like you're obsessed with these like powerful guys in entertainment. And Tom Jones was one of them, but then Howard Stern was another one. Howard Stern is the best interviewer and the most singular talent of my time, I think. I think the man is brilliant. He literally created an industry within an industry. And I can't stand it when people call Howard Stern or refer to him as a shock jock. He's so much not that, more than that. Do you listen to him every morning? Absolutely, until I have to go to work, of course. But Howard is brilliant. He's he's a terrific master interviewer. I love it when he has on like a Paul McCartney or something because he does his homework. He gets people to say things they would never say under any other circumstance. Case in point, another brilliant man, very funny, but just wildly intelligent and also always does his homework and he's a curious person just like Howard he's just naturally curious who I have tremendous respect for is Craig Ferguson listening to Craig Ferguson being interviewed by Howard was like Superman and Batman like it was just amazing I want to look that one up he's just a wonder and people that don't know Howard it's like when people say they don't like baseball I think that's because they don't understand what they're watching if you don't like Howard Stern I think it's because you're ignorant of who Howard Stern is and you haven't listened to enough Howard Stern he is funny and he's kind and he and his wife and his ex-wife they had a great relationship he's just a good man he's a good partner a good husband a good he seems like a very good dad but he's just a very decent superhuman and going to their home was one of the greatest experiences ever they walk through every room and Howard and Beth can tell you where every single thing came from in their house it wasn't like somebody came in and just like decorated. designed it right I'm sure they have decorators that uh, uh, help but Howard's like 
I got this, literally, I got that fireplace when we were in Scotland, or I got this here, or we found that there. And they're constantly, like, not in a weird way, but they're always like, he's got his hand on her leg, or she's got a pinky holding his pinky. Like, they really like each other and enjoy each other's company. And that's who, you know, I feel comfortable being around as, as other, you know, if we're going to hang out with other couples. I mean, it's not like we're best friends with Howard and Beth, but we are, we are friends with them, and they're lovely people to be around. And John and I are kind of the same way, Dom. You know, we're we're certainly louder than they are. I mean, we are Sicilian and Italian and all that, but we, we like each other. We like each other's company. And I like being around couples that clearly, they don't just love each other. They're not married for, you know, staying together for the kids or something. They really like each other. They're just lovely people. I'm obsessed with Howard because Howard demands your respect if you really know him. He's just wonderful. Okay, so a big part of this podcast is about social impact and giving back because I think people in the culinary community are so compassionate and generous. But I feel like you do a ton of that, which I think a lot millions of people know. But one thing I think the general public may not know is how generous you truly are. So aside from sending my mom flowers on her birthday every year. Well, our moms have the same birthday and your mom does send me her rugless. True. You may hate this. Good setup there, huh? I think, I feel like you're a softy, but also very compassionate. Hi, Isabel. Hi. Isabel just woke up and she, it's evening time. And she's like, huh. Where's my snack? (laughs) But when it comes to charity, why do you do it? I feel uncomfortable having too much when there are so many that don't have enough. I am a pretty happy poor person, and I think that's a big key in life. If you're happy, no matter whether you're born rich, rich or poor, I think if you're happy and proud of where you come from, you are fearless in where you're going because the worst thing that can happen is you go back to who you were. I worked a long time to get happy with who I was. I got there somewhere in my late 20s, I I guess. I started being kind of okay with me. Um, So I'm not afraid to go back to that. And I I dig being poor. I like my pickup truck, and I still have the cabin I moved into that was $575 a month rent to own. I like shopping at Target. You can see me in a Walmart. I love living near uh, Union Square Green Market, of course. I live in the Strand Bookstore. I like walking around in no makeup and sweatpants and flip-flops because that's who I am. Like, I, my favorite pair of uh, jeans or whatever, you know, I mean, that's, I don't need all of that. So, and I also have met really smart people along the way. Oprah Winfrey, President Bill Clinton have both said to me, you know, give back in the way that you, that feels right to you. Use what you love as the way you give back. I'm a cook, so I give back through food. My daughter is a red-nosed pit bull. (laughs) So I give back to animals. My mom has 15 rescue cats. So, you know, I give back in a very normal, something that makes sense for what I do for a living. And I feel that there's an ebb and flow to the universe, whatever religion you are, or even if you're an atheist, there is an ebb and flow with energy and putting positive forward for all of the negative that there is is a necessary balance to the math of the universe. I'm a big Einstein fan, and, and, and that's kind of his theory, you know, err on the side of caution, whether you're religious or not, and do good works to balance the opposite. Uh, and what I learned from President Clinton and uh, Oprah both is a lesson that anybody can do at any level of income. You do what you can, and you do it through the thing that you love, so if you're a great gardener, help plant a garden at the local school or whatever, right? If you can't give money, give your time. Give your old pots and pans to the food bank when you get a new one. Or go down and just help serve, you know. You don't always have to give money. 
But if you are a business person, why not make a business plan that includes an avenue for revenue for what it is you want to fund? That's what we did with Yummo is a portion of our proceeds from all of our pots and pans and creating things that we like that people are going to buy. Use that to fund instead of just throwing big fundraisers and parties. And then that was the brainchild and the seed that was planted for the dog and cat and all animal rescue fund. If you're good at business and you're lucky enough to start a business in this country, which that's what I love about an American passport, knock on wood, is you still can, make that part of your plan. Make it part of the business plan. Make products you love and use that to fund and drive your give. If you had not been discovered as a potential TV cook and personality, what do you think you'd be doing? I'd still be working in food. I mean, I'd just be making people happy. I might own a diner. I might think run. you'd be upstate? Oh, I'd definitely probably be a mix. I really like a mix. I like being in the country, and I like being in the city. You know, I used to think of the city as a snow globe when I was a little kid because we'd only come at Christmas, and we get to see one show. My mother would save all year. Got to go to F.A.O. Schwartz, the old one. They had five floors. Had a boys and girls hair salon on the fifth floor, and you could have a cup of, of tea or cocoa, and they'd do your hair, and and then you go and play with every toy in, on five floors. Play with everything. And we'd pick one toy, we'd go to one show, and we'd go to the Nutcracker at the Met, we'd see the ballet, and we'd see one Broadway show, and we'd go for one carriage ride, and we'd eat one dinner at Mom Leone's, and we'd buy one toy. And it was like a snow globe. It was like magic to me. It opened the universe to me, and my mom worked like an animal to be able to do that for us. I love this city as much as I love the country. I, I grew up in the Adirondacks. I value it with all my heart and soul, and I'd still be that same person. You know how I know that? Because I was that person when I was poor. Nobody knew who I was. I was still the same person. I'm going to work in food, and I'm going to spend time in the country and spend time in the city. You said diner. Would you have like opened a diner maybe? Yeah, up? Diner or a bar or a pub or, a th- you know, something casual where you could hang up a sign and say, I went on vacation, see you soon, and people would still come back. And it's never been about the money for me, and it still isn't. I give it away as fast as I can earn. It gives me the creeps. All right, let's do a speed round. And by speed round, I mean- you will never achieve that with me. You know that, right? I'm going to cut you Nine off like you would not believe. interviewers have tried over 20 years. I've never effectively done a speed round. 20 years later. Here we go, <laughs> folks. What did you have for dinner last night? I was going to make my uh, black ragu and calamari spaghetti. You and I talked for two hours. My husband got cranky and ordered Indian takeout, which I really wasn't in the mood for because I was hot. So I ate three bites of it and went to bed. So pretty much nothing. Name an ingredient you can't stand to see on a restaurant menu. Oh, none. There's, I, I don't boss other people's food. That's just stupid. Oh, the word foam. I hate the word foam. Foam on a menu pisses me off. If you want to put it there, that's fine, but just don't list foam. Foam doesn't sell anybody anything unless you're trying to get a shave. Smell in the kitchen you love. Garlic and olive oil and anchovies. Mm. Smell in the kitchen you hate. Burnt garlic in other people's houses. Last thing you ate in bed. Well, the last thing I fed in bed was a chicken sandwich or a patty melt pieces to Isabu because she doesn't get up before noon. And on weekends, that's what she has for brunch. Delicious. You eat well, girl. Um, Last thing you cooked that didn't work how you thought it may work. Oh, I don't know, because I always fix it. Like, if I overcook something, I turn it into a soup or a dip or, like, I can't, I can't really remember something that was, like, completely inedible. 
a toast, bread, anything with bread. I burn bread all the time. So lots of times sandwiches or things that were to be served on bread have to become something else because there is no more bread in the house because I've ruined it all. What's the last thing you Googled? Uh, I don't know. I can look in my phone and tell you, though. Yeah, tell me. Sure. Uh, we're playing a game right now where people have to cook uh, cuisines that I'm not, that I don't know a lot about. Um, so the last thing I Googled was um, Filipino cuisine. I was trying to study uh, Filipino cuisine. Um, Austin or Montreal? Austin. Because Montreal has just done something horrible, even though it's my favorite and my baby Paris and has been my alt to France my whole life. My dog is 12 years old. For 11 of her 12 years, she has been a traveler and visitor that is not only regarded in Montreal, but so loved that the hotel that we stay at there made her a bed with her name on it, a giant, like, four-foot expensive bed with her name on it. And when I check in, they don't care where I am. They're like, where's Isabu? The customs people, when we land, they get down in her face and she kisses their face all over. They have recently outlawed pit bulls in Montreal. They will potentially take her, confiscate her, so I can no longer uh, take my dog to Montreal. So that's an easy one. It would have been neck and neck a few weeks ago. But until we get the mayor of Montreal to reverse that or Trudeau to make a phone call, I probably will not be going there. Best gift to give someone or that you've given someone under $20? Your time and a meal. That's sweet. And you can leave the dish if you really want to be super over the top. What actress would you want to play Rachel Dominica Scuderi Ray in a movie? None. My voice is too annoying and clearly singular. What would you want people to say about the career of Rachel Ray, your legacy? Legacy is such a creepy word. It's like when people say, how'd you build your empire? It's like, what am I, Darth Vader? I don't know, man, that uh, that the world was a little bit better because I was here. You know, we helped out some kids. We helped out school food. We fed animals. We cared for our neighbor, and we got some families and young people into the kitchen and valuing their lives a little bit more and not waiting for weekends or days off or summer or retirement to live a little, you know, that they had a little fun because they hung out with us or they knew us. See how I say us? I can't do anything about me. (laughs) It's so weird. Well, thank you. You know I'd go to battle for you, and I truly believe you've been instrumental. There's other people, but you were early, early on instrumental in getting people into the kitchen and really changing how food and the kitchen were viewed. Thank you. I mean, people ask me all the time because they think it's going to be controversial, you know, my answer about all the meal kits and stuff today. I'm like, look, man, I think you should just learn how to cook because it's not daunting. But if you don't know how to cook and that gets you cooking, go ahead and pay them a little extra money and buy your kits. But use it as a stepping stone would be, you know, my my, my thought. Because pretty soon you'll be the boss of that and you can cook more for less money if you get out of that program. But if that's the program you use to get you in the kitchen, and that's the equivalent of me teaching 30-minute meals 20 years ago, or Food Network even allowing me to be on, not being a chef, just telling people, here's how you collect stuff from the fridge. It's the mise en place system, but we're not going to call it that. We're just going to say, grab a pan and carry everything, you know, put it in front of you, knead it twice, chop it once, stand it, chop here, Uh, the chop and drop, all the little things that we did, those are the building blocks of any culinary school. I just put them into plain English. Anything that gets people and children, most importantly, into the kitchen and caring about what they eat 
and how they spend their lives and the quality of their lives, that's all tied in together. It's all one, one thing. If I was a little part of that, cool, great. But I'm really thrilled that people are so into all sorts of different diets now and caring about what they eat and how they eat. And I'm thrilled for HelloFresh and Blue Apron and whoever if it gets people cooking. I think they should wane themselves eventually when they're in charge of it just because they don't need that step anymore. But if we were one of those steps, I think that's that's like the new step, you know? But if we were one of those steps, cool, great. Thank you. Thank you. Quote, if you're happy and proud of where you come from, you are fearless in where you're going because the worst thing that can happen is you go back to who you were. Thanks again to Rachel Ray. Find her and her brand at www.rachelray.com. Don't forget to tune in next week when Beyond the Plate presents Just the Plate, a short segment where Rachel will break down her carbonara pasta. You can find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Cappy's Plate or go to www.beyondtheplatepodcast.com. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yeaton, a.k.a. The Wizard, and Sean Petrosian. Thank you all. Music is provided by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on your preferred listening site of choice. And to my fellow DHS warriors, thank you for inspiring me to do this podcast. Check out their podcast, And the Writer Is, with Ross Golan and The Art of Wrestling with Colt Cabana. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.